Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 123. On today's show, we talk about gnawed Neanderthal bones, ancient Sicilian wine, and modern versus ancient human diets. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going? Hello, good. So, man, I don't even know what day it is. We've been (laughs) uh, just a little dive into our personal lives. We've been... Driving every single day for the last eight, eight nine days, days now. Yeah. 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 Sunday. So eight for days. the last like eight days now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're getting from, we're going from Massachusetts to Nevada to do some archaeology. Yeah. So eight days ago we left Massachusetts. We are now in Wyoming and I think the uh, constant travel is starting to wear on us a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Because we work full time. Yeah. We, can only, we do long days on the weekends, but during the week, we're only doing a couple hours, maybe two, three hours a day mm-hmm. uh, before basically my meeting schedule. And yep. it's a lot. So anyway, for that's sure, neither here nor there. So, <laughs> well, it was there and now it's here. It's both here and there. So it's... I thought I was supposed to make the dad jokes. <laughs> Usually it is you, but I couldn't let that one go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what is the Neanderthal story of the week? Neanderthal story of the week. I feel like we should just bookmark one segment for Neanderthals every week. There's just like a resurgence and research into them. Is it? We're just paying attention. Is it that we're paying? I don't know. I feel like people are just more interested in them now. No. No? Scientists don't do research because people are interested in them. Yeah. Well, anyway, the major news sources are picking up a lot of Neanderthal stuff lately because we first saw this article on CNN and they titled it Nod Bones of Nine Neanderthals Found in Italian Cave, which is like usually they're over the top with their headlines. Mm. And this one is not that bad. There's nobody surprised or astounded, (laughs) which is great. (laughs) Yeah. So what's going on here? So basically, there's a cave in Italy called the Guattari cave and this cave was originally found in the 30s the 1930s and a couple remains were found in there but there's a lot of blockage and they just weren't able to like do full excavation back in the day and recently people have gone back in to to get these blockages out of the way and do like a more thorough excavation and they have found nine new remains Plus, there were two from the previous excavations. So that makes a total of 11 Neanderthals found in one cave, Mm. which is like kind of a lot of Neanderthals to be found in one cave. So that's sort of why this is so 
interesting and different and exciting. And these bones, these Neanderthal bones, mm-hmm. have what look like cut marks in them. Well, not cut marks, but marks that don't look like they were born yeah, that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's clear signs of gnawing, hence the title of the article. They think it's probably by hyenas or a hyena-type animal. And the big question is, is they don't know if the Neanderthals were dead when the gnawing happened or if they were killed by the animal. Mm-hmm. So kind of a horrific thought to consider there that they were... <laughs> <laughs> they were mauled by hyenas and then killed. Yeah. And then their bones were not on. But who knows? But yeah, so the the Neanderthals that they found, they did they were able to date them and one of them does date back to like ninety thousand to a hundred thousand years ago. Mm. And then the other eight date back to fifty thousand to sixty thousand years ago. That's a huge span of time. Isn't it? Yeah. So and I there it's a little unclear if all of the bones show nine from hyenas and like why there would be such a big time span between the older one and then the newer ones. But mm-hmm. that it is interesting though, because it does show that this cave was preferred by those people at that time. So they definitely were going back to it often over the years. So that's one interesting thing. So yeah. And they never went back and we were like, man, those bones there. Oh, well. <laughs> well <laughs> yeah. And like, because this isn't an, an article in like an archaeology journal, it doesn't say like as far as depth that the bones were found at, yeah, like yeah. was one deeper, sure therefore buried. older. Yeah. It's a cave. I mean, caves by nature are made typically either because of some geologic instability, more likely because of like water and stuff flowing mm-hmm. through them over millions and millions and millions of years. They, you know, erode out and make these caves. So because of that, they often have, you know, water brings in sediment with it. Yeah. And, you know, ceilings collapse, all kinds of stuff happen. Yeah. So, yeah, for although sure. Although the reconstruction, like there's a drawing and it looks like a more of a rock shelter kind of on the front of it. There must be some caves kind of going back in there. Again, we don't have the original article, but. Yeah. And yeah. they definitely said that there was like blockage and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it says an ancient earthquake and then a more recent landslide mm-hmm. had made parts of the cave inaccessible. So. Right. That's part of the reason why some of this stuff was buried and some wasn't and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. So, do you remember how you can tell that these were more likely nod marks and not cut marks? Like, it wasn't some sort of form of cannibalism or something like that? Like, cut by a tool. Right. Because it would be like a straight cut if it were cut by a tool and then... Well, gnawing would be a different type of. Well, there's a very there's a very clear way to tell. Gnawing is usually done by your canines, your canine uh-huh. teeth, and those those leave a U shaped groove. Oh. Whereas a cut mark with some kind of a tool or a knife, and by knife I mean like stone knife, mm-hmm. has a has a V shaped groove. Oh, so it's a okay. pretty clear indication when something has been cut with some sort of tool and something has just been gnawed on. Because even if a human is going to gnaw on bones, typically it's going to have a U-shaped groove because our teeth are shaped that way. Right. Well, and that is an interesting point to bring up because one of the things they said is that there were ventilation holes in the ceiling of the cave. Mm -hmm. And then some of the bones were also burned. So that led to speculation that perhaps there was cannibalism going on, which I think is a bit of a reach. I mean, but, maybe it's just that this was a great cave to be in and somebody somebody came by and there were just like bodies in there from the recent hyena activity and, you know, bodies stink and are gross. So burn them and get rid of them. Oh, that's that's possible. You know? Yeah. Like some sort of funerary yeah. situation, whether e- either that or just cleaning up. Yeah. Yeah. Know? 
Yeah, that's definitely possible. I don't know. That definitely seemed like the writers of the news article were kind mm-hmm. of reaching because, you know, the word cannibalism is always something that sparks interest in people yeah. reading. So, yeah. Yeah. Caves are also cool, too, because, you know, they are they just get layered with sediment year after year. And one of the other things the authors were doing with this cave study, this current cave study, and probably looking at some past excavations as well, but they're looking at the sediment to take a look at climate change mm-hmm. because it represents, you know... 60 to 120,000 years of animal species and pollen. So if you just look, you might not be able to tell the layers year after year, like you're looking at the rings of a, of a tree, but in some cases you can, especially if it fills with water, then you get those laminar sediment sediments like you do at the bottom of a lake. But if it doesn't, I mean, simply just looking at the, the pollen, you can tell species of plants from 80,000 years ago versus 60 versus 40 versus 20. Yeah. And same thing with the animal species. Were there any that are extinct now that you're seeing in lower layers? Right. Stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. A lot of stuff we can tell from just this one cave. Caves are like literal treasure. Yeah. They're like archaeology gold. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And the other interesting thing too that they're saying is that they hope to do more excavation to find tools, which mm-hmm. I took that to mean that they they did not find any tools in the excavations that have happened so far. So that'll be interesting because if they don't find any tools or any other evidence of, you know, domestic use of the cave, then that I feel like would give more credence to the thought that the hyenas killed them and dragged them back there to eat them rather than humans were like occupying this cave so yeah, and, and or that, not humans excuse me neanderthals and that if there was fire then maybe they they did ritualistically burn them yeah you know if they're not going to hang out there for a while right they like to leave their stuff around yeah for sure so all right so that's pretty cool so let's go from there and celebrate with a glass of wine <laughs> back in a minute chris webster here for the archaeology podcast network we strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world one way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once we do that through the use of zencaster that's z-e-n-c-a-s-t-r zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest just send them a link to click on and that's it zencaster does the rest they even do automatic transcriptions check out the link in the show notes for 30 percent off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code tas Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, (laughs) we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market 
market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 123 of The Archaeology Show. I'm going to start saying it like, like Ohio State and say The Archaeology Show. It's not Archaeology Show. It's The Archaeology Show. I don't know why they do that. There's got to be a reason for it. <laughs> I don't know. It's always been The <laughs> Ohio State. Please don't come and murder us in our sleep, Ohio people. He does not know what he says. <laughs> I know. I'm not a sports ball guy, so I don't really know, but I have heard that kind of stuff before. So so anyway, welcome back to The Archaeology Show. And now we're going to talk about wine. And as we're making our journey across the country, we are using a service called Harvest Hosts, which basically gives you I'm putting in scare quotes here, like free camping mm-hmm. uh, at wineries, distilleries, places like that. But we end up spending more on wine because they say patronize the people yeah. that you're at, right? Like we're currently at a bowling alley in Evanston, Wyoming, and we are going to go have some of their wings and maybe bowl around. Uh, For sure. <laughs> I'm like pretty excited about that. So let's it's, get this segment going here. I know, it's our duty as Harvest Host <laughs> members to go do that. We're exactly. doing the service. Now, anyway, it brings, brings money and stuff to local communities, things like that. So we like to support that. But anyway, you know, wine is definitely... Definitely on our minds. And maybe when I found this article, that is why I clicked on it. But the article is entitled How Scientists and Archaeologists Trace Beer and Wine Through Antiquity. Now, this is from Wine Enthusiasts, but to their credit, they actually link to the PNAS article, mm-hmm. which is the original article entitled Chemical Evidence for the Persistence of Wine Production and Trade in Early Medieval Islamic Sicily. And that is an open source journal, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. That's cool. So. And one of the cool things I liked about this was, I mean, first off, their study area, pre-Islamic Sicily. Let's just put that together for a second right now, because mm-hmm. uh, what that really means is, and I and I wrote this down, so Sicily, the area of Sicily, which is the island off the boot in Italy, right. that's actually not that far from, well, not that far from the Middle East and yeah. North Africa. Yeah. You know, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump across the Mediterranean. Right. I say that having done that in the USS Enterprise and standing there seeing like 18 foot swells on the Mediterranean <laughs> on a clear day. So, yeah. Not I mean, exactly easy. Attacking that kind of a sail back in the day would have been pretty difficult, but. Yeah. Of course, you could have walked there too. You should just go around the long way. Oh my God. That would take forever. Well, but, you know, yeah. people did it. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, it was under Islamic control, which I'm not exactly sure what that means. Like, which Islamic countries or areas actually had that area under control, but it was for a lot longer and much more recent than I ever would have expected. And it says fifth to the 11th centuries. Oh, no way. AD. Oh, so, okay. So Sicily would have been under the control of the Romans 
at the height of Roman Empire, right? Yeah. And then when they started to sort of dissolve, then I'm guessing... It, whatever Islamic group came in and took control of the island until yeah. they finally lost it in the Middle Ages? Is that, it, I guess so. And it yeah. would be real interesting to see because you think, when I think of Sicily, I mean, I've never been, to, I've been to Italy a few times, but when I think of Sicily, I think of, you know, pizza, pizza. and, you know, Sicilians <laughs> and, you know, all that, like, like, like Sicilian mobs. <laughs> Sicilian mobs. I mean, they, all the typical Italian stuff yeah. I think of when I think of Sicily. Yeah. But it makes me wonder, like, how much Islamic architecture and influence is actually in Sicily? I would imagine a lot because I don't know a whole lot about Sicilian culture necessarily but i do know that like the food and some of the traditions there can be very different from mainland italy so i'm sure there's a lot of different stuff there and it must be because of this influence from the islamic culture that Mm -hmm. that ruled for gosh how long like 800 years it sounded like you said six seven hundred years yeah 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 so that's cool so yeah so anyway one of the things that was really cool, there was a researcher, she's a postdoctoral fellow, I think it is, Leah Drew. Drew? I'm not sure. D-R-I-E-U. We're going to link to the original PNAS yeah. article as well. But she's from the University of York. She's a chemist, and she studies the eating and drinking habits of the past. So she's like an archaeochemist. Cool. <laughs> That's very neat. Yeah, which is actually cool because a co-founder of this network, Tristan Boyle, studied archaeochemistry uh, in, his, oh, in his program. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, she uses organic residue analysis to confirm the chemical fingerprint of wine on ancient pottery. And it gets really deep into the weeds here when you look at the article, but specifically, again, she was looking at the wine that was traded in pots from Sicily Mm -hmm. while under that Islamic control. So tartaric acid is basically crystals that grow in wine as it ages. And in fact, apparently tartaric acid and those those crystals, those kind of crystalline forms are looked for by wine enthusiasts in really old wines. Oh, really? Yeah, I liken it to like a, a really sharp cheddar. It's got to be a similar process. Oh, sure. Yeah, because yeah. a really sharp cheddar, when you get up into like the five, six, seven, eight year range, it's crystally. They got those. They have those yeah. crystals in them, and I don't know if it's uh, as a result of tartaric acid. I'm not mm-hmm. really sure. And, and I wonder too, like in wine. I know what it's like in cheese, but in wine, is it? visible crystals or is it like are they microscopic i wonder how that works right well the thing is other things can also create tartaric acid other fruits stuff like that okay when it's just kind of anything that can ferment i would assume i mean kind of yeah yeah, pretty much so so then she looked at malic acid which is also found in sour fruits she looked at unripe grapes tamarind wine itself grape juice and vinegar and she ended up coming up with a the fingerprint is basically the ratio between tartaric acid and malic acid is different in grape products as compared to most other oh, fruits. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. sure. That makes sense. Yeah. And then you can take this study a little bit farther, and which I think is kind of like the nail in the coffin for this whole thing. Like, why wouldn't you just kind of do this first? But, I mean, if you don't have DNA analysis, that's one thing. But mm-hmm. a lot of times when you have these wine production areas, you will find seeds, you will find the um, skins of grapes Mm -hmm. around. And that's a good clue that they weren't just eating these grapes, like table grapes. They were were peeling them them. for processing. They were squishing them for some reason because they made vinegar out of grapes. They made just grape juice out of grapes Mm -hmm. and then they let it ferment into wine as well. So they did actually quite a few things. But anyway, using the ratio between tartaric and malic acid and then looking at the DNA analysis from grapes, basically you could say not only are these typically wine grapes that mm-hmm. we found, but also judging by what's in these pots here, this was definitely, you know, some kind of wine. Mm-hmm. So 
that is pretty cool. Yeah, that's um, neat. They also, using that DNA analysis, were able to find an exact match to modern, and I'm going to pronounce this right, Savonian gramps, uh, grape, gramps, grapes, <laughs> S-A-V-A-G-N-I-N, grapes, and not just like a descendant, but an exact match, which means wow. that the branch clippings from, you know, a, a grapevine 900 years ago has propagated 900 all way, years all the way up until so when they sampled that it That is now. so cool. Yeah. So that is so neat. Know, vineyards have been like that for a long time, right? Yeah. And, and also uh, horticulturalists. Yeah. They'll take something. It didn't take them very long to figure out a long, long time ago, thousands of years ago, that if you take a piece off of one plant, you throw it in the ground, you're going to have another plant. Yeah. The same have, exact plant, basically. But they may not have known it was the same exact plant well, back maybe. in the day. Yeah, yeah. But it's the same exact plant. Yeah. Right, genetically. That's so, really cool. Yeah. That's so neat. So anyway, lots of cool stuff that they're doing there. There's one thing I was, thought it was interesting. The, the article in Wine Enthusiast made it sound like she invented organic residue analysis, but I'm pretty sure she didn't. <laughs> um, she's just using that as a tool. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's pretty neat because the fact that you can get it off of pottery enough of it off of pottery uh it probably means to me that it wasn't just like discarded pottery that was empty like mm-hmm. it was just like out of wine so they chucked it or something like that it was probably pots that had been either forgotten about left in a building something happened and the wine evaporated through time and you're left with a lot of residue yeah maybe not even visible to the naked eye but enough that you can extract it from the pottery well, and i wonder if reusing the same pots over and over and over would give the same kind of thing because it just seeps in over right. time and yeah you might not be able to visually see it but it just is sure. into the fiber of the ceramic basically yeah yeah so cool anyway yeah that's pretty neat this is a a good article in the fact that uh, in the wine enthusiast article actually goes into beer quite a bit too. I, I just kind of focused on the wine. <laughs> <laughs> and they actually do talk about beer in the PNAS article as well. Yeah. So definitely head over and check that out. It's got its own idiosyncrasies, but kind of along the same lines of doing the organic residue analysis and the genetic analysis as well. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool. And like what were conclusions or, or were there not really conclusions drawn? It was just showing how this process can work. Yeah, I mean, really what they were looking for is they were trying to identify it. Okay. Like, where was this, where did this come from? So the conclusion was, can you find this residue and date it, basically? Can you... Or identify it. Can you identify it? Okay. Yeah, because I don't think they could necessarily date it. Right. Yeah, but they could definitely identify it and note that it was a certain type. And then if they have... It's like you take anything else like obsidian. Obsidian is a chemical fingerprint from a volcano, right? Mm-hmm. When they studied these Sicilian pots, and it was an Islamic society, they can now do this residue analysis on pots maybe found in some Islamic countries where they might have those and say, hey, this wine totally came from Sicily. Mm-hmm. You know, So just being able to identify that. And then using this process, I mean, there is wine all over the Mediterranean, right? right? Just everywhere. So being able to understand the chemical analysis and fingerprint these wines and their points of origin will help better understand Mediterranean trade networks. Yeah. So, and maybe even global trade net, well, at least hemispheric trade networks because they work yeah, from all over I'm, I'm seeing what you're saying. Like we could potentially see like this specific wine residue yeah. all over Europe and then we can see how it was moved around the continent basically. Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool to find like some Sicilian wine somewhere up in Northern England or something yeah, like that? An yeah. Old pot, you yeah. Know, just like the journey that wine would have taken and then, you know, people enjoyed it up there and, mm-hmm. and just, yeah, it would have been a, 
It would have been a thing. Yeah, so that would have been really cool. Food has always been one of those elite sort of commodities where, you know, I mean, all going back, I mean, I don't even know if there's a start. It's just been always, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have something that is hard to get and sought after, you're seen as above. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Wine and food. I mean, just to say that you've got wine from Sicily, you know, whatever it was called back then, I Mm -hmm. don't know if it was called Sicily, but you've got wine from here. They're like, Ooh, wow. You're, you're rich and famous, you know? So that's literally status symbol for sure. Yep. (laughs) The only thing that's kind of changed is now we just try to get the rare stuff that's more expensive to have our statuses because, you know, when we were on the East Coast, we were buying wine from Lodi, California in the store, like in the grocery store, right? So, yeah. or whatever stores they have on the East Coast, the crazy wine stores. <laughs> but, so, it's a little harder to do. So, you got to get the the ultra rare stuff. Yeah. So, in fact, I was reading this book. Just one last little story here. I was reading this book. Well, I've been listening to this book as we've been driving. It's called Flip the Script by Oren Hatch, I think his last name is. Anyway. He was just talking about a story where he was, you know, at this exclusive party, basically talking to the bartender and he's talking about, you know, having your status, like establishing your, your an equal status with somebody who you're trying to negotiate with. And mm-hmm. he gave his knowledge to the bartender, trying to find out if this was just a weekender bartender or a real bartender. And the woman he was talking to, he was like, he was like, what do you have? And she's like, oh, we got these things. It was like Corona, Bud Light. And he's like, really? And she's like, wasn't my call, man. And, uh. <laughs> He's like, man, he was like, not too long ago, I got to have a, what do you call it? Like a torpedo tactical nuclear penguin or something like that. And apparently it was like this beer that like a thousand bottles of it were made. And now it is so rare and sought after. It goes for something like a thousand to five thousand dollars a bottle. What? Really? Yeah, what this, makes it so special? I have no idea. It was That's a, crazy. I think what made it special is it was served to the right people and there was a limited quantity uh-huh. and they made a demand for it. Right. So now there's bottles floating around that people bought up and if you have one or you see one it's like this thing all right well keeping an eye out for that i guess anyway (laughs) all right so with that we are going to take our final break and we're going to come back and get into the weeds with another pnas article nitrogen isotope perspectives and things like that but it's basically talking about modern and ancient diets and comparing the two back in a minute You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen. Welcome back to episode 123 of the Archaeology Show, and we are going deep into some science for this one. (laughs) But more food stuff, right? Oh, yeah. More food stuffs. (laughs) Yeah. We're hungry right now. We haven't had a very good lunch, and we just want food. Oh, my God. We're going to start sounding like Alex from Animals. (laughs) Yes, that's right. 
All right. So this is also from PNAS, like the last one. And PNAS, for those that don't know, there's a lot of open source stuff on here, but it's the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America, to use their full title. Mm -hmm. This was published on May 11th, 2021, and it's called A Global Carbon and Nitrogen Isotope Perspective on Modern and Ancient Human Diet. Now, I will tell you, this thing really quickly goes deep into the weeds on chemistry. It does. I read the abstract and I was like, cool, <laughs> got this. I'm, I'm here. I'm with it. And then I started reading the, the full article and like I felt myself start like skimming more than reading because I was like, yeah. oh, dear God, there's a lot of science here and yeah. my brain is not absorbing all of it. Right. I can't even say the symbol that they use here. I can't remember what it's called. It's like, what is this, a lowercase omega or something? I'm not really sure. I don't know. But anyway... One thing, you don't feel guilty for not reading the article because one thing I actually heard recently from a college professor was the best way to to read basically a lot of scholarly articles because these can get really detailed is you understand how the article is written. So definitely start with the abstract. Yeah. Then go all the way to the conclusion. Yes. It's either the conclusion or results. Sometimes they call it different things, but mm -hmm. whatever the final word on whatever they did is, because usually those two things are written in somewhat plain, unjargoned English. Yes. And you can just, okay, this is really good here. And also go through after that and look at the figures. Yeah. Because yeah. the figures will give you an idea. Now, if you think that for whatever you're researching or studying that you need to dive deeper into it and say, yeah, but at locality five, what really did they find here? Like <laughs> you just need to dive into it, right? Well, if it's your area of study, then of course you're going to be that interested in it. But maybe, maybe not. It depends on what you're trying to figure out. Well, right? Because yeah. the, the, the whole reason, the whole thesis about a scientific paper and how these things are written is replicability. So they have to put in their methods. They yeah. have to put in yeah. exactly what they had. That's why you'll find massive tables of spreadsheet data in reports. And mm -hmm. a lot of times these spreadsheet data are actually in supplemental materials that aren't included in the paper anymore. They're some other PDF or, or downloadable material that you can actually get. Because they have to include that stuff. You're looking at replicability. Other people are going to say, oh, well, I'm going to try this in my lab mm -hmm. or I'm going to try this on my computer and I'm going to try to do the same thing. Here's exactly how they did it. Yes, I got the same results. Bam. Now you you know have correlation. So. Yeah. Well, as far as reading the article goes, I am definitely going to be the first to admit that I read the abstract. I started the article and then I skipped to the <laughs> results. I think they called it in this article. Right. I think most people naturally yeah. just kind of do yeah. that. I'm just saying, it was, make it official. Just yeah, skip to the results. Just do it. It's great. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, the point of this article. So they looked at 13,666 Modern human collagen and keratin samples. So collagen is hair. Yeah. Yeah. Hair mm -hmm. and keratin. It's not like fingernails or something. Or do you get keratin so. in hair as well? No, I think yeah. it's hair and fingernails. Hair and fingernails. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Now you you learn a lot about somebody's diet by looking at their hair and their fingernails. Right. Right. Uh, you learn a lot of stuff about that. And these guys didn't do their own study. They looked at other reports that again had these tables of data mm -hmm. in them. They had already done the sampling. They'd already sent off for results, and they were looking at some of the uh, chemical signatures within these results. It might not even have been the original re purpose of the paper that sent off the samples mm. to get analyzed. It was all modern humans or it was ancient and modern? Well, it was they a mix. Say, when they say modern human, we're talking about homo sapiens. Okay. We're not talking about homo erectus. We're not talking about Neanderthals. Right. So when we say modern humans, we're going back 200,000 years. Okay. Yeah. So now we're going to get into finer detail on this here yeah, in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This 
macro study of these 13,666 samples were, I don't know if I read deep enough to see if it, what regions it crosses, but basically it was from a lot of different places yeah. and it was from a lot of different populations. So current modern populations and by modern in this case, I mean, you know, post-industrialization. Right. And then also modern like subsistence societies, like hunter-gatherer societies mm-hmm. that still exist today. Right. But also prehistoric peoples and pre-industrialized modern peoples. Right. 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 It so, sounds like they split these samples up to pre and post industrialization right. and also to subsist- subsistence and urbanized or non-subsistence yeah. populations, whatever you would, would call that. Right. So that's how they were like splitting them up and then comparing them to you know prehistoric mm-hmm. examples. So. so they needed something to... I guess, measure all these against, right? So they created a what they called a reference frame called the modern diet equivalent. So it's this metric that they came up with. If you want to know more about that, again, read the details of the paper. But they used this modern diet equivalent concept to compare modern human diets. And again, like I just said, human diets prior to the advent of industrialized agriculture and the natural environment. And by natural environment, it just means people just eating off the natural environment like right now, like hunter-gatherers, oh, okay. basically. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. so... And, and we say industrialized agriculture because agriculture, sure, agriculture invented 10, 12,000 years ago definitely changed the way humans eat. And you would probably focus a lot more on certain foods because you're growing them and you have a lot mm-hmm. more of them right there. But but industrialized agriculture really changed things when mm-hmm. you have started having these large factory farms, you know, just pumping stuff out. So that's really what their, what their metric was for that. And what it revealed was what we can probably basically guess, but it's nice to have the paper and research to back it. But it revealed that humans that are pre-industrialized agriculture and humans that are subsistence cultures today have a much broader diet than people who are non-subsistence food eaters like most of us are, to be honest, Mm -hmm. uh, right now. Even if you have a garden in your backyard and you go to the farmer's market every weekend, your diet's not as broad as somebody who, you know, pre-industrialized agriculture. It's Mm -hmm. just simply not. Somebody who's just living off the land and what is around them ends up eating a much broader diet. Yeah. One of the ways that they characterize that statement was they say humans have the ability to consume opportunistically as extreme omnivores within complex natural food webs, which basically means we'll eat anything. (laughs) (laughs) And when when your life depends on it and your family's life depends on it and you've got 15 screaming children right there going, I am hungry. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're going to find something to eat. You're going to be like, wow, that tree bark does actually look good now. Mm -hmm. Oh, turns out it's got maple syrup on it. No, that's Mm -hmm. not how that works no that's not how that works at all (laughs) i was gonna say like that's how insects and crickets and things come into play right because they're actually like a really great source of protein that's right and a lot of communities do eat them on the regular so yeah 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 i mean humans you just think of even if you've never been to one and i haven't been to like any authentic ones but you think of like asian markets and stuff like that a lot of the stuff that they eat over there would just be people in the western world is just repulsed by yeah. it's just what they've what they've eaten their whole culture and yeah. they yeah. they didn't go into industrialized food production until way later than say the rest of western world like mm-hmm. the asian societies did not so they still have a lot of those cultural things that are just you know accepted yeah that they eat yeah like makes, india africa places mm-hmm. though, yeah. makes for a much broader diet so right. as far as overall health goes i'm guessing that's a it's a good thing so yeah, yeah. one thing i thought was interesting about this article is because I was like, well, we know what people were eating in the past, right? Like we know from burned 
remains of hearths and things like that. Like we know what they were eating, Mm -hmm. but what this article pointed out in which, and what I thought was kind of the most interesting is that yes, we know what they were eating in the past, but we don't know what proportions they were eating it in. Sure. We know they were eating corn. They're eating wheat. They were eating meats of some sort, but how much of each we just didn't know. But this study is what's helping like narrow in on what those proportions were and helping, you know, just give a better idea of what like the diet and the life of prehistoric people were. So that was a really cool takeaway yeah. for me from this article. We all hear the phrase, you are what you eat. I mean, that's quite literally true with some things. Right? <laughs> yeah. like the, the, the stuff that's in the food that you eat leaves a fingerprint literally inside of your body. Right. Yeah. And you can really tell, like, we've known for a long time how to tell some of the macro things, like, were they, you know, subsisting on fish products and marine products more so than, mm-hmm. say, land-based products, mm-hmm. you know, that that's pretty easy to tell in somebody's diet by looking at their, their hair, their fingernails, right. you know, stuff like that. So, I mean, it also helps that they lived in huts by the water. You can probably guess that too, but it's nice to have this correlation, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and the more we refine this science, the more we might refine, be able to refine, I mean, even more things about somebody's diet. You know, there's Otzi the Iceman who was found up, was it the French Alps or the I, Spanish Alps uh, up in that area? Yeah. Uh, something like anyway, that. He, he was found and they were able to actually, not just from his actual stomach contents, but they were able to retrace the areas he was likely to have been based on the levels of certain chemicals within his body because mm-hmm. he was essentially preserved in the ice, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of stuff about him that they could still sample and test. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. One of the things, again, that came out of this study was uh, some actual numbers here is they said that the uh, the dietary breadth across modern non-subsistence populations, which is pretty much everyone listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. has compressed by as much as two-thirds as a yeah. result of the rise of industrialized agriculture and animal husbandry practices, mm-hmm. which means when they say animal husbandry practices, I mean, it's, we're, we're eating a lot less variety of like small and large game. Yeah. Like we're eating a lot of chicken and beef. Yeah. And pork. Know? And pork. Chicken, beef and pork. Chicken, beef and pork. Yeah. And and that's pretty much it. Yeah. You know, we're not putting a lot of other game on our, mm-hmm. on our menus. So yeah. now, now we just drive across Wyoming. They may beg to differ. There's a lot of like, I think in, it was either Nebraska or Wyoming in the last couple of days, I saw a place that was just like the big game cafe or something like that. I don't know what they serve. <laughs> Probably. <So. laughs> yeah. I don't know. Probably Actually. Venison, I would m- imagine. Buffalo and, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So that is super interesting. It, it makes you wonder if maybe the paleo diet, maybe there's something to that. Maybe it's yeah. not just a fad diet. Maybe, know, right? maybe go research that and at least take the broadening of your diet aspect from it. Cause I'm sure that's part of it. I don't really know anything about paleo diet, but okay, well let's get into the paleo diet for a second because a lot of people <laughs> do bring that up, right? Yeah. They think, they think, well, let's not eat any processed foods uh-huh. because obviously they didn't have processed foods yeah. back in paleo times. Yeah. Whatever, it's like olden times for right. prehistoric people, right? It's like, what does paleo, paleo times, times. Even mean? <laughs> right? So, but they didn't have any processed foods prior to our ability to process foods. Right. I mean, along those lines, neither did Victorian England, right? They didn't have processed foods either. Not, yeah. not today's processed foods. Yeah, yeah that's not for sure. Not processed in the way that we think of processed yeah. foods, right? So then again, what is what is food processing? Is wine a processed food? Is cheese yeah. a processed food? Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess they are technically. Where I'm going with this with the paleo diet is basically I've heard some people say it's just eat more meat, right? And, and take yeah. out your grains and stuff like that. But given what we know from the actual archaeological record and these samples that were taken and then analyzed in this way, 
it wasn't just eat more meat. It was eat more of a lot of different things. Yeah, it's the it's the variety that yeah. seems to count here. Not not just not processed foods, but a variety of not processed foods. Right. So good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. That gets hard. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to take a punty anytime soon, but I mean, for most of us, that just means we're going to have avocado toast in the morning instead of like, you know, I don't even know what else. <laughs> Cereal. Yeah. Yay. Paleo diet. So, avocado toast is like so five years ago. Come on. There's got to be something better than that now. I literally don't know what else to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's delicious. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I think we're going to end this. Those are three very different but interesting news stories. So I think we, uh, we covered a lot of ground there. Yeah, definitely. It was interesting. All right. Well, we'll be back next week with, I'm sure, something equally interesting. Yeah. Probably not. But for right now, we're going to go broaden our diets with chicken wings. So Mm, chicken wings. (laughs) Nice. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the archaeology show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at arcpodnet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh.